and welcome to another episode of FinTech Recap, a podcast where we recap the latest news and interesting trends from the FinTech ecosystem. My name is Alex Johnson. I am a uh, newsletter writer. I write uh, the FinTech Takes newsletter and a research director at Cornerstone Advisors. Um, and joining me, as he always does, is Jason Mikula. Jason is the publisher of the wonderful FinTech Business Weekly newsletter, a newsletter I'm happy to report to you all you can now subscribe to. Uh, Jason, thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure to be here and talk about the uh, latest current events across banking, FinTech, crypto, metaverse, whatever other crazy stuff is happening in the past month. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, hopefully your holidays and uh, uh, break you took over the holidays was uh, restorative and ready to get back into it in January. Absolutely. Hit the ground running uh, on January 3rd, and it's been a uh, furious sprint ever since then. Yeah, it feels like uh, fintech has, if anything, accelerated more. I was trying to take a break during the um, holidays, and that's when uh, Jack picked his fight with Andreessen Horowitz on Web3, and I just couldn't totally unplug myself from at least the uh, crypto metaverse component of uh, what we do. So um wasn't quite as mentally a big a break as I was hoping for, but it was certainly entertaining and uh, ready to get back into the weeds. So um as a reminder for all of our listeners, the way that Jason and I tend to tackle this podcast is we've selected a number of different kind of fintech headlines or uh, news items from roughly the last month or so, so the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. And our plan is just to sort of bounce back and forth between those topics, uh, give some quick takes and reactions to them, and uh, we'll do that for as long as we have time. So Jason, um, I will give you the honor of picking our first topic. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the uh, stories making waves towards the end of last year, you know, and or beginning of this year, uh, was that some of the credit bureaus are gearing up to begin accepting data from buy now, pay later providers. So there's a story uh, in the Wall Street Journal about specifically Equifax uh, adding buy now, pay later to credit reports and some additional reporting in American Banker about Experian and TransUnion. Uh, planning to do the same. You know, this has been uh, definitely kind of a hot topic, uh, you know, in the past several months, both uh, in Congress, right? You had a House Financial Services Committee hearing uh, specifically about buy now, pay later, where the question about credit reporting, building credit, but on the flip side, also uh, how these companies go about underwriting and protecting consumers from becoming over-indebted uh, was definitely a key topic brought up by representatives as well as uh, consumer advocates who were testifying at the hearing. Um, and you know, you've also had more recently the CFPB open an inquiry into the sector. It's not exactly clear uh, what that means, other than that the Consumer Protection Agency is gathering data from some of the largest players in buy now, pay later in the U.S., uh, including Afterpay, uh, Affirm, Zip, and I think three others. Uh, and so this sort of news bit that you know it, it appears that the bureaus are paving the way. Uh, to have buy now pay later trade lines, you know, including the sort of split pay or pay in four format, incorporated into credit reports, 
you know, is is super timely. I mean, to me, uh, there's a lot of there's almost more unanswered questions than there are answered questions, right? So once you begin adding these, adding the ability to report this data or furnish this data, um, you know, how many of these buy now pay later providers are going to choose to furnish that data, and what kind of impact you know might that have both on consumers as far as you know, their credit report or credit score, uh, but also the buy now pay later companies. And if they, you know, end up using this new data source or new trade line data as part of their approach to underwriting consumers, which to date, you know, the majority of buy now pay laters have not used bureau data as part of underwriting. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. This one um, definitely jumped out to me as well. I'm glad you, you highlighted this story. Um, I mean, it seems like to start with, you know, just for like context, the problem historically in adding this buy now, pay later data, particularly the the split pay or pay in four style loans to a credit report was really like a technical issue, right? Like credit reports, mm-hmm. the way that furnishing worked just wasn't sort of easily compatible with these really short term, small dollar uh, six week term, you know, loans that, um, you know, in a lot of ways don't look like loans, right? They don't have any interest and, um, they're just, they don't, they don't act like loans in a lot of ways, some of which was sort of intentional in the design of them, uh, way back in the day. And so, I mean, it seems like the, the delay or the holdup, at least from a bureau standpoint has been, um, you know, how do we make, changes to our infrastructure to allow for this reporting. It sounds like from what the Wall Street Journal and American Banker have reported, you know, Equifax has mostly worked through those issues and Experian and TransUnion are kind of right behind them. So I think, you know, from the Bureau's perspective, makes a lot of sense, right? This was this was always going to be something that they were going to uh, adapt to and start incorporating. The Bureau's want to be sort of the central place where any potentially relevant sort of repayment data is captured and can be fed into models. I think, you know, as you sort of uh, hinted at, the the interesting question that I'm, like you said, it's a lot of questions we don't know the answer to. The question I'm sort of left wondering about is, what will the impact be on consumers' credit histories and the scores that lenders use, right? I mean, as as uh, I think you and I have maybe written about in the past, I actually just wrote this week a little bit about buy now, pay later. The split pay and pay in four products are used predominantly by either consumers that have non-prime credit histories, or in a lot of cases by consumers who don't have any substantial credit histories at all, whether they're mm-hmm. young consumers or just consumers who've been underbanked. And you know, it, that's a really hard one to kind of suss out because on the one hand, I could see buy now, pay later becoming a really sort of low risk on-ramp for some of those consumers to start establishing a credit history because these are short-term small dollar loans. Um, you know, as, as I think we know, having gone through the experience, they really encourage, you know, auto pay and, um, you know, they keep a pretty tight rein, at least on an individual provider level in terms of not letting any one consumer default on too many of these loans before they sort of turn the spigot off and and cut them off. So I think it can potentially act as a a good sort of new on ramp into the credit system. But I think the other thing you worry about, as with any sort of credit product aimed at that population, is you know the buy now pay later providers presumably are going to report negative data 
right? As, as is required <laughs> by the bureaus as well as positive data. And so I could certainly see this potentially hurting some consumers as well. What, what do you think about the impact to consumers? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is probably the biggest question, right? In the way that it was talked about in you know, some of these hearings, uh, sort of viewed or, or positioned reporting as in unequivocal positive. And I think, you know, at least from, from the people I've spoken to, it's just not that clear, right? Um, I mean, from a very sort of uh, technical standpoint, you know, how do some of these legacy scoring models like FICO or Vantage interpret, you know, somebody who's using two, three, five, 10, you know, 20 really short duration uh, split pay plans or, or, you know, six week duration trade lines that is going to increase the number of trade lines on their report, but it's also going to decrease the average age uh, of each of those trade lines. So I'm, you know, I, I always like to caveat that, like, I am not a data scientist. You know, I just have worked around a lot of them. And, you know, I've asked this question to, to numerous people um, who do have, you know, a better vantage point into how these sort of scoring algorithms work. And, and at this point, it's really not clear, right? Uh, the Mm-hmm. The goal of reporting is not necessarily to improve these consumers' scores. The goal of reporting is so that other creditors who are underwriting these customers have a more accurate picture of their financial position. So yeah, to your point, you know, if they're making payments late or not paying, that will that will lower their credit scores. If they're paying on time, you know, it's kind of unclear to me exactly how much influence that's going to have. I think in the Equifax story, you know, they cited some analysis that the typical user of buy now pay later saw their FICO score increase by something like 13 points. So it does seem like there's an opportunity to help consumers who either have you know thin file, no file, or potentially with you know some amount of um, you know damage to their credit history in the past to build you know, positive data points about their repayment behavior. Um, but it's just, you know, kind of remains unclear exactly what the, the aggregate impact of this is gonna be to consumers. And, and it is probably gonna split based on, you know, are you, are you paying these back on time or not? Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes me kind of go back in time a little bit to, um, you know, earlier waves of fintech that have sort of disrupted the the credit scoring market. So if you go back and look at, you know, circa 2014, 2015, when sort of earlier generations of online lending um, for uh, credit card refinance or, you know, kind of the, the P2P lenders, when that was really rampant and kind of a new phenomenon at the time, you know, we definitely saw a delayed reaction, but definitely a reaction uh, in the way that, you know, FICO and the bureaus updated their scoring models, right? I think it was maybe FICO 9, if I'm remembering correctly, that sort of made a subtle but important tweak to the way that it looked at, uh, you know, personal loans to sort of account for the fact that when a, a consumer was taking out a personal loan and paying down their credit card debt, that wasn't necessarily indicative of that consumer meaningfully improving their credit worthiness, but more just sort of a temporary status change in the overall sort of balance and utilization of their accounts. So Mm -hmm. I think there are 
likely to be some some changes um, in the way that these models work to account for you know the fact that anytime you introduce a new type of credit product that gets a lot of adoption in the market, it, it, it actually changes sort of consumer behavior and you notice new things and people behaving in new ways and the models have to take time to adjust to that. And as we know, these models don't get rolled out super frequently and uh, they get updated or adopted by lenders even less frequently. And so, you know, we're still waiting for a lot of, you know, uh, lenders in uh, sort of the mainstream um, kind of credit markets to adopt you know, FICO 9 or FICO 10, you know, let alone whatever new version of the FICO score and the Vantage score comes out that adapts to this buy now, pay later. So I do think the impact will only be felt kind of slightly longer term. In the short term, it's a little unclear what the the result is going to be. The other question I have for you, Jason, is going back to your point about sort of the buy now, pay later providers themselves, I don't know this. I haven't spoken to anyone at the buy now, pay later providers, but my my hunch is that for at least a couple of them, reporting credit data was probably always something that was going to happen and that they figured into sort of their long-term strategy. But I'm not sure it's something that they all are necessarily thrilled about doing. Um, my, my read of some of these providers, if you look at like a Klarna or an Afterpay as an example is, you know, they feel pretty confident in their underwriting using the data that they have. And particularly for recurring customers, they feel pretty good about their ability to underwrite and control risk. And now having the option or perhaps the requirement to, you know, report that data and to share that data with the industry more broadly would seem strictly from a competitive standpoint, not in terms of what's best for the consumer or regulations, but strictly from a competitive standpoint, maybe a step back and something that kind of weakens their sort of underwriting advantage. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different different um, pieces here, right? So on, on the reporting side, um, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been saying this on Twitter for like weeks now, and no one, no one has uh, come at me. I, I won't correct there you. Is, <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm not aware of a requirement to furnish data. Yep. That's so right. even if you know Equifax has um, resolved the technical piece of being able to accept this type of product, you know, at, at the moment. There is no requirement that says, you know, Klarna, Afterpay, you must report this data to the bureaus. Um, and, you know, there's reasons not to, right? I mean, it it um, can be relatively technically complex. You know, I do not know all the ins and outs of the uh, storied Metro 2 format, nor do I care to. Um, yeah. And there's also, there's also, Compliance obligations under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, as far as having you know policies, procedures in place to ensure the accuracy of that data, um, and the obligation to respond to disputes. So if, if a customer says you know this uh, information on Equifax is wrong, you know you're as the furnisher you're obligated to to respond to that complaint, right? So I mean there, there's a real set of um, costs, you know, technical costs, legal and compliance costs to furnish data. And you can imagine, you know, some of these buy now, pay later companies deciding, you know, maybe we don't want to furnish this data, you know, beyond the sort of competitive point that you mentioned, just, just the actual resources required to do it. Um, I think on, on sort of the front end, which is, 
you know, we've been talking about furnishing. You can imagine a world where, you know, if a majority of these binopulator companies are furnishing the data, pressure increasing on them to use it to actually underwrite uh, sort of the initial application when a consumer is requesting one of these plans. There are, you know, a lot of reasons why they probably don't want to do that. The most obvious one being, you know, that it sort of wrecks the streamlined UX that has made this, this product category successful in the first place. If you're having to, you know, put in your social security number and uh, agree to a whole variety of terms and conditions, you know, as part of the uh, application process or signing up for a split pay plan, you know, that will uh, reduce the conversion rate. And that is absolutely not something that these companies want or the merchants that are offering these plans want. So I, th I think there's like a lot of sort of different pieces of this, but, you know, uh, I don't think any of them are, are frankly, particularly something that the companies offering these plans want. It's more like, you know, what is, what are they going to need to do to, you know, appease the sort of current regulatory uh, and congressional establishment without, you know, hopefully making any sort of significant, um, you know, damage to their existing business model? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that, you know, in the short term, we're probably likely to see the big guys uh, who are, you know, A, facing a lot of that regulatory scrutiny and B, sort of have the requisite resources to invest in, in furnishing and building out that infrastructure to support it, I would imagine they all jump on board sooner rather than later, maybe with some caveats or some uh, tweaks that are a little bit different. But in general, that seems likely to me. I think a firm already is a little ahead of the curve there because they've done a lot of um, the sort of larger point of sale lending in addition to, to split pay. So they, I know as a customer, have um, definitely uh, been reporting to at least some of the bureaus for a while now. So I imagine the rest of the big ones will catch up and, you know, we'll see some of the, you know, kind of smaller ones trickle in and sort of the longer impact of mm -hmm. this play out, play out over time. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, let me um, grab the microphone then and I will jump us to our next topic, which is um, P2P. Um, I, it's a topic I'm endlessly fascinated by, uh, P2P payments. And um, something that continues to sort of evolve in slow but interesting ways. One of the, the pieces of news that came out before the break was that Alloy Labs, um, which is a sort of uh, alliance or group of uh, community banks that uh, sort of team up to develop technology and to build fintech partnerships and make investments in fintech, um, have actually launched a new, uh, I guess, payments network uh, in partnership with PayRails. Um, and the first sort of product that they're introducing as a part of this new network is a what they sort of describe as an open uh, P2P payments alternative to Zelle uh, called Chuck. Uh, Chuck, like the name C-H-U-C-K, all in capital letters. I'm actually not sure what the acronym stands for. Um, and, you know, that struck me as a pretty interesting development. Um just because, you know, last time I sort of looked in on P2P, you know, Zelle was doing pretty well in terms of gaining adoption. Now, obviously, it sort of started at the top of the market with the largest banks and now has been trickling down to sort of smaller, midsize and community banks and credit unions. But that's been a, a process that's been, I think, fairly successful uh, with, you know, more than 
I think more than a thousand uh, banks and credit unions now signed up for that service and offering that service to their customers or members. And then at the same time that this news happened, I also saw that um, Block, formerly Square, uh, through their Cash App product, um, which is one of the, the big P2P payments networks um, and sort of one of the ones that worries banks and credit unions, quite frankly, uh, added the ability for customers to not only send each other uh, money, but to also send crypto, so Bitcoin in the case of Cash App, since that's the only cryptocurrency that they support, as well as uh, stock or fractional stock to other users as gifts. And I, I found the contrast between these two announcements pretty interesting because on the one hand, it seems like uh, you know community banks are still sort of uh, fighting to get to a maybe more open, lower cost alternative to Zelle, which seems to be sort of the, the motivation behind the creation of Chuck. While at the same time, uh, Cash App and then presumably you know Venmo and others that are competing with Cash App more on the fintech side, aren't resting on their laurels, but are really sort of evolving the nature of what P2P means and moving well beyond kind of moving just uh, US dollars to other forms of currency that might be, I don't know, more engaging, more viral, more sort of interesting to their their customer base. So I I found the contrast between the two of those interesting. I, I worry a little bit about mid-sized banks and credit unions being able to sort of keep pace with fintech, which is their stated objective around investing in P2P. But I don't know, did you have any thoughts on this news? What what sort of struck you as interesting when you saw that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely caught this news late last year. Um, and I mean, the a whole host of different thoughts come to mind when I saw it. And, and as you sort of uh, summarize it there, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I, I understand, you know, the the impetus for, you know, smaller community banks and credit unions <clears throat> perhaps to want to develop their own alternative to, to Zelle, which is operated by Early Warning, which is like a consortium of, of you know, the largest banks in the U.S. Uh, and sort of develop their own network that, that would compete with that. I mean, I think the, the first question that came to my mind was, who's who's using this, right? So if I think about, um, you know, a typical uh, customer or member of a credit union or a community bank, you know, I don't necessarily imagine that that is the same audience as somebody who might be using Cash App or Venmo. And perhaps that's a good thing, right? That maybe this is a, a sort of a green space where it's an audience that, you know, perhaps is a little bit older and less tech savvy. And, you know, this is a solution that can serve them where maybe other, you know, products and services on the market um, were not ones that they were comfortable with, right? On the flip side, you know, that also tends to be a demographic that might be, you know, less amenable to sort of changing, um, you know, payment behaviors that they're used to, whether that is, um you know, writing a physical check, which my parents still do, um, you know, using cash or, or some other mechanism. So, I mean, I think this is definitely one, you know, one to watch to see how it unfolds. I think like the, the success hinges on getting a critical mass of credit unions and community banks on board quickly, uh, and then getting, you know, members, customers of those institutions using the service 
quickly. I think the component of it, and I'll admit I don't totally understand how this um, is going to work, how it, how it works in practice, is the characterization as an open network, right? So if you think of yeah. Cash App or Venmo, um, something that limits the utility is the fact that you know if I want to if I want to send my mom you know fifty bucks on Venmo, you know my mom does not have Venmo, and you know she has Chase, but like I can't Venmo it into her Chase account. So on the on the marketing side, that does provide a certain amount of uh, virality and network effects that have have pushed both of those applications to to huge numbers. But on the flip side, being a closed network does limit some of the utility for you know, for people who are using it. Right. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I think that there was a, a story a while back last year talking about sort of the economics of Cash App and the fact that they uh, have a customer acquisition cost of $5 or less, which I, I have my quibbles mm-hmm. with the way that was calculated and we don't have to get into that. But the basic premise was exactly what you said, which is the virality of P2P drives people who want to get the money someone is sending them to download the app. And then once you have that, you have your sort of initial user that you can then try to convert into more of a regular customer. And so I do think it is interesting that I think what you described is right. The Chuck seems to be focused on providing sort of an open-ended network where you know, you can send money from sort of the Chuck application in your bank or credit union app but it can go to anyone who doesn't then have to sign up for uh, Chuck or have that in order to be able to get the money into their account. So it's, I guess, in some ways more convenient for the sender, but doesn't have that same sort of viral hook for the receiver that would drive mm-hmm. growth. So I, I do worry about that. And I, I think as you kind of touched on as it relates to marketing, you know, one of the things that maybe is a little under-discussed with Zelle is, you know, say what you will, positive and negative about Zelle, but they put a lot of marketing dollars into promoting that, right? I mean, they had national TV commercials with well-known actors. I think Tay Diggs, I remember, was in one sort of promoting Zelle. I still hear it promoted uh, on podcasts that I listen to in ads. If they'd like to sponsor this podcast, they're more than welcome to. And so, you know, I think that uh, the money that big banks have been able to throw at kind of kickstarting that network is something that's not to be underestimated. And I I struggle to see how an alliance of community banks will be able to bring that same marketing muscle. So yeah, the the quick growth as you outlined, I, I don't see an obvious answer for getting there. So it'll be interesting to see how they tackle that. And I think one one last bit that that uh you know the Cash App gifting each other stock in Bitcoin, you know, brings to mind is sort of like the wider context, right? Which is yeah. right now, you know, there's just a rapid uh, you know, shift happening in both consumers' payment behavior, right? And like buy now, pay later is part of that as well, but also the infrastructure of payments. Yep. Uh, and I think over the holiday, I downloaded uh, Facebook's Novi app, which they've rebranded these things so many times. I always have to check that I'm saying the right one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and yeah that, I, that's Libra from way back in the day, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and and frankly, it's it's pretty bare bones, and, and they're piloting it, it only in the U.S. in Guatemala mm-hmm. for s- sending. Uh, I think it's Pax's stablecoin, and so USDP. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like okay, this is this is interesting. You know, I, I downloaded it, poked around, but to really sort of achieve um, 
breakout velocity, you need to hit a critical mass of users, right? I mean, Facebook or Meta uh, has plenty of money to put, put behind marketing this if and when they decide to do that. Uh, but again, you look at something like Chuck, and it's like the number of options people you know, have now and will have in the future continues to increase. Um, and it, it makes it a very sort of uh, competitive and frankly, sometimes confusing landscape for the typical consumer to decide like, okay, what is, you know, what is the best way to, to send this money? Uh, it's probably going to vary based on, you know, are you in the same country and currency I am or somewhere else? And so, you know, as great as these technologies are, uh, I think in a way it also is making it more confusing for your typical consumers to understand, you know, how and why they should use which product. The trade-off of, you know, speed versus maybe security versus cost. Um, so we'll see if, if uh, the market is big enough to sort of sustain the number of wallets and payment modalities that are, you know, very rapidly being created and, and deployed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, from a consumer standpoint, payments, payments everywhere, and no idea how to send. So I, <laughs> I totally agree. I, I think that's uh, that's going to be a key challenge moving forward. Um, let's hit one more big topic. I know you had another one that uh, maybe was bouncing around Twitter that you wanted to get into. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the uh, Dave's lackluster SPAC is is certainly a timely one. So, I mean, yep. uh, I was checking uh, the share price just before we hopped on here and it was trending just below $5 a share. So down, you know, 50% versus sort of what the, the SPAC IPO uh, price was. Yep. Um, and, and I'll admit, it's been quite a while since I looked at Dave's financials and its investor deck. Um, but certainly this is like, perhaps a couple of different trends intersecting here, you know, SPACs have had a pretty hard time since sort of their, their peak of SPAC mania in, I want to say like spring of last year. Uh, and a lot of SPACs, both FinTech and otherwise have, have trended down um, from, you know, where they started trading. So, I mean, I guess like questions here, you know, what happened? Um, you know, are there any sort of, generally applicable lessons to either other neobanks or to other sort of fintech or insurtech companies that are either in the process of spacking uh, a group that includes aspiration another sort of neobank uh kin which is an insurtech and uh better which is the mortgage company like are there lessons here that we should be looking out for you know in fintech in neobanking in SPACs? Like, what do you take away from this? Yeah. Well, you mentioned better. Better's going to have a hard time regardless of what they do. Like they're going to have to, <laughs> they're going to have to change their name and hide that they were ever better before they even try to get onto the public markets. But I, I generally think it is really an interesting thing. I, um, I, I tweeted that, uh, you know, a question, which was, you know, do public market investors irrationally hate SPACs now? Uh, sort of looking at Dave, but also sort of the broader broader context. And I said that sort of tongue in cheek because I actually think the root of this is, uh, as it relates to SPACs, a very rational sort of heuristic that public market investors have come up with over the last uh, you know nine to twelve months, which is 
uh, if it's a SPAC, uh, treat it with a great deal more skepticism than you otherwise would. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, going, going public via a SPAC while it was all the rage in, you know, March of 2021, uh, has sort of proven to be something. And I guess you could have seen this coming, just looking at kind of the structure of SPACs and who they benefit and sort of why companies would go that route. But it ended up being the vehicle to public markets for companies that, uh, probably weren't ready or maybe never were going to be ready to be public. And so I think after mm -hmm. a few initial sort of hard lessons, it seems like public market investors have sort of adopted a stance of, if it's going public via SPAC, you know, you're going to have to prove to me that it's worth the money that uh, you say it's worth. I'm not going to sort of take that on faith. And I, I think that in some cases, we've seen some companies like SoFi kind of rebound from uh, an initial sort of rough entry. And if the sort of underlying business is fairly strong, actually perform pretty well in the public markets. But uh, I think we've definitely seen other ones. Uh, I wrote about Money Lion uh, not too long ago, sort of continuing to have a bit of a tough time. And uh, the fact that that might represent concerns with sort of the business more generally. So I, I do think it is becoming kind of a, a heuristic for public market investors and kind of a, a refutation of all of the the hype that went into it. I, I remember uh, Chamath uh, sort of tweeting out when he was talking about his SPAC in, in Metro Mile that, you know, Buffett had Geico and I have Metro Mile and here's why I'm really <laughs> bullish on it. And uh, Metro Mile just got picked up for a song by Lemonade not too long ago after having a pretty rough debut into the public market. So I, I think that the the SPAC mania has sort of produced a SPAC backlash that, you know, to your point about Dave, I was reading a, a TechCrunch article by Alex Wilhelm on Dave, and I hadn't dug into the financials too much recently either, but the article made the case that Dave is actually in fairly strong financial shape. I mean, it's nothing like a new bank or a Stripe or some of these other companies that either have gone public via IPO or probably will. But it's also not necessarily a company that you wouldn't want to invest in and that doesn't have at least some claim on growth and sort of a strong footing to move forward with. But it seems like it's it's sort of suffering from its association with SPACs. But yeah, I mean, the conversation we just had is treating it as a, as a category is doing just that, right? It's like, right. oh, well, you know, these are all trending down. And yeah, this company started trading publicly and, you know, I think when Dave actually began trading, it was at about eight some odd dollars and has lost, you know, 30, 40% of that value. And neither of us have looked at the financials, right? We're just sort of applying right, right, uh, right. So, some probably not, you know, not necessarily great assumptions from like, oh, well, what happened to all these other SPACs? So I think, I mean, the part of this I'm most interested to see play out is, you know, will other companies in this category, and, and I'm going to loosely call like Dave and Money Lion neobanks, um, will other companies that have yet to go public uh, sort of have this uh, connotation to them, right? So does this do anything to Chime, Vero, you know, Monzo, Revolut, and 26 Not that those all have, you know, the exact same business model as Dave and Moneyline, but they are sort of in the same broader category. So as some of these companies potentially, you know, look to come to the public markets, you know, maybe in 2022, maybe later, um, will these, you know, will Dave and Moneyline become sort of reference points for, 
you know, multiples or valuation metrics for those companies. And only time will tell us on that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the right question to wonder about. And, you know, I mean, this is part of a larger trend, as you noted, with SPACs outside of fintech and just honestly with kind of a cooling off uh, on the public markets for tech stocks generally. So I do think there are some interesting sort of macro effects that are probably going to impact it as well. But yeah, I mean, I I think I saw a quote from uh, one of the co-founders of Stripe not that long ago, basically saying like, we're happy to stay private for the foreseeable future. And as much as people want to invest in Stripe, I get it from their perspective, right? I mean, they they have mm-hmm. no trouble having reached the scale that they're at. Whenever they need capital, they can get it. They can get it, I'm sure, on very uh, sort of company-friendly terms. And, you know, why why go public? Why why sort of go through that initial effort to, to get into the public markets and kind of take that risk? So I do I do sort of foresee a scenario where, for companies that don't sort of get to that stripe chime yeah. uh, type of level, there might be some challenges. Um, and for the companies that sort of get to that sort of breakaway velocity, maybe we see a delay going onto public markets and just sort of mm. uh, a happiness continuing to operate uh, privately. So it'll be it'll be very interesting to uh, to see what happens. That's I mean that's a really interesting point because if you think about the narrative before the sort of uh, very hot SPAC and IPO market of 2021, you know, what was the trend of companies like, you know, Uber and Airbnb, that they were staying private, you know, orders of magnitude longer than tech companies in sort of prior generations, Microsoft, Google, what have you. Uh, and so perhaps this sort of time period last year was a bit of an aberration. And, and to your point, companies that are very strongly positioned, your, your you know, stripes uh, and chimes who are not having an issue raising continue uh, continuing funding, you know, or or if they're you know cash flow positive, you know, yep. maybe they push off going going public uh, because there are you know real um, you know expenses and, and downsides and constraints in doing that. Yeah, no, I I definitely think it's all sort of part of that larger trend of, you know, um, you know, dual class uh, share stock and uh, founders maintaining control of these companies longer. I mean, it all sort of fits into this broader point, which is, if life is good in the private markets, stay there. And I, I think you're right. The The last year, I think, maybe provided a bit too optimistic of a sort of evaluation of fintech and tech more generally. And that allowed for sort of... Um, lesser valued or, you know, companies that maybe had some concerns baked into them to sort of jump to the public markets and take advantage of that enthusiasm. But that certainly seems to be waning. So we'll, uh, we'll have to keep a close eye on this and uh, revisit this topic as we see some of these additional, uh, additional companies going public. I want to end, uh, as we sometimes do, with uh, sort of a lightning round of a couple of fun topics. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, maybe just a couple minutes each, but I, I think you and I each have a sort of Web3 adjacent topic that uh, caught our eye from the last month that we want to just hit quickly. Yeah, this will be my uh, uh, can't let it go, which is Melania Trump's <laughs> NFT collection. Um, you know, I think I tweeted something about this and mistakenly gave her credit that the proceeds were going to charity. I learned later that a quote unquote portion of the proceeds are going to charity. And when the Washington wow. Post asked her team uh, to clarify what portion that was, they uh, declined to answer. 
Uh, so yeah, you can go and snag a uh, Melania Trump NFT. Apparently, she's sold over three thousand of these. Uh, you will need to pay in Solana, though. Not even not even on the uh, Ethereum uh, blockchain if you want to grab uh, one of those. So I guess uh, stay tuned to see if there's a, another collection or she's you know airdropping some of those into your wallet. But uh, yeah, I. I saw that, and I, I can't say it increases my confidence in the uh, legitimacy of NFTs. But you know, we'll see. Oh man, well, it's um, I, as it relates to the topic we were just talking about as well. It's like we have the the Trump technology company going public via SPAC. We now have Melania uh, <laughs> NFTs. So yeah, there's a a certain amount of grifting that seems to gravitate to some of these uh, financial instruments, which I. Uh, I do worry about, I guess the uh, upside to Solana is at least gas fees for uh, minting the Melania NFTs might be a little lower. So uh, benefit there. (laughs) Awesome. Um, All right. Let me run my quick one by you. Mine is um, also Web3 adjacent, but more around the metaverse. I actually got an Oculus Quest 2 headset along with seemingly everyone else uh, this Christmas. And um, so I was able to take my first steps into the metaverse, which was a fascinating experience. Um, You know, suffice it to say that while Facebook and others are sort of positing that the metaverse is the sort of large macro trend that will define the next hundred years of technology and the economy and the way we work and the way we socialize, it really struck me more as just a sort of new version of the Nintendo Wii in that there were some pretty interesting gaming applications that were sort of addictive for the first couple days that I played them. And then uh, sort of quickly the novelty wore off. Um, Outside of gaming, I didn't notice a ton of the things that uh, metaverse commentators have been talking about. I did uh, actually attend a virtual NBA basketball game uh, through Verizon uh, or through uh through venues, which is the the Facebook Oculus app for sort of socializing and concerts and sort of social activities. And I will say it was intriguing to sort of sit virtually courtside uh, at the game and uh, have little sort of uh, bobbing virtual avatars next to me that I could like fist bump and sort of wave at. So it was definitely novel, but not in a way that I felt like I would ever spend a tremendous amount of in-depth time engaging in. If if anything, VR sort of left me with the uh, feeling that I might dip into it for brief intense periods, but that sort of the sustained vision of me spending a majority of my time in the metaverse, at least with the current hardware and technology we have, doesn't really seem uh, overly feasible. Um, any, uh, any experiences you've had in the metaverse or are you still sort of sitting outside observing? I will have to wait until next uh, next Christmas. Maybe somebody will get maybe <laughs> Oculus three or whatever version we're on at that time. Yes. But the, the real question is: Did did the uh, headset make you motion sick? It didn't make me motion sick, but I did definitely uh, sort of have a, a bit of a a pressure headache maybe over time. The the straps mm. are not incredibly comfortable. You're basically wearing a tablet on your face, and so it's not. Uh, <laughs> 
it's not the most sort of comfortable thing to do long-term. It also, when you're standing up and interacting, definitely comes with a certain sort of uh, back pain over time, as I think anyone who has a, a job that requires them to stand would uh, be able to testify to. So those there were definitely some physical tolls in interacting with the metaverse. And you know, the other thing I noticed is um, there were a lot of sort of analog, or I guess analog is the wrong thing to say, sort of uh, 2D assumptions that went into my 3D experiences. There were a lot of companies that had built apps for uh, the Oculus and were sort of staking their claim in the metaverse. But, you know, a lot of them didn't really seem to have any obvious reason to exist. Like, for example, I, I briefly dipped into Netflix and the Netflix app in Oculus is literally just a giant virtual uh, living room with a really big television screen on one wall that you can watch Netflix on. So um, not really any uh, meaningful difference between that and my my uh, IRL television. So um, I, I am waiting to see more examples of this uh, meaningfully changing things. But I think in the short term, uh, banks can probably hold off on building virtual branches in the metaverse. Yeah, I have a whole tirade about uh, metaverse real estate, but we will have to save that for another time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start off the next one with that because I, I too have a uh, a rant on that subject, but we'll save it for the next time. Jason, thank you so much as always for joining me. And uh, it's really fun to, to chop up some trends as we uh, head into the next year. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, sir. Perfect. Good. All right.